Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing really the expert on all things railways in the UK, in Britain, um, Christian Walmar, whose latest book is titled British Rail, A New History, out from Penguin in 2022. Um, This is a really fascinating book, both because British Rail is a key part Um, of really 20th and 21st century uh, infrastructure in the UK in a lot of ways. Um, And also because it's something that I think a lot of people, certainly myself included, thought we knew kind of all the main things about this institution that um, has now been privatized. Uh, And yet, turns out, with this expert um, expertise from Christian, there's a massive amount we don't necessarily know. So I'm really excited to welcome you, Christian, to the podcast to tell us about British Rail. Thank you. Could you please introduce yourself a bit and explain why, amongst all of your expertise, you decided to write this book? Okay, well, I've uh, written around 20 books. I'm essentially a journalist, and I suppose I still approach my books in a journalistic way, although I try to ensure they are reasonably rigorous. And so I've written histories of uh, the London Underground, of Britain's railways, of the Trans-Siberian, of Indian railways, of indeed American railways, or railroads as we call them there. Um, And uh, I thought there was actually a gap about a story of British Rail. I had written as one of my first books kind of 20 years ago, the story of privatization and why the railways were uh, sold off. Um, But uh, I thought there was a, a real gap that nobody had really explained the story of British Rail's 50-year history, you know, nationalised in 1948 and privatised uh, almost exactly uh, 50 years after that. And I thought it was an interesting subject, both as railway history and, and kind of setting that out, but also um, to look at a, a state enterprise Uh, and assess both its strengths and weaknesses. That makes sense. Um, We're obviously not going to be able to go into all of the detail and all of the really fascinating stories that you include in the book, but hopefully we can give listeners sort of a taste of some of the main points. Um, And so the obvious place to start with is why was British Railways created and what initial challenges did it face? Uh, Well, it was created in uh, uh, 1948, post-war, Really kind of uh, uh, two reasons. I mean, one was a political one that uh, the Labour Party had taken over and 
believed in uh, state involvement, uh, uh, not least in uh, various other industries, uh, notably steel, electricity, uh, and so on, were all kind of uh, incorporated into the state. But uh, the other reason was because uh, the system had been enormously run down during the war. Uh, it had been used uh, extremely heavily. Obviously, it had been bombed somewhat, although not not very extensively, but nevertheless, there was still some damage. But most importantly, it had not been subject to much investment and maintenance uh, because there were other priorities, uh, no, notably the armaments industry. So it was in a parlour state. Uh, it was owned by four uh, private companies, which had been created in 1923, um, and they would not have had the money to invest uh, in uh, improving it and uh, bring it back up to pre-war standards. So it was a pretty obvious thing for the state to take over uh, and both operate and manage. How did it fare then initially? You detail quite a number of challenges um, at the beginning of its existence. Uh, yes. And uh, to be honest, um, in the first few years, it didn't do particularly well. It was incorporated into a larger organisation called the British Transport Commission, which uh, not only had the railways, but had uh, the waterways and even uh, long distance uh, road transport. Um, and it, it was rather forgotten within that uh, huge, huge organisation. And certainly its investment needs were, for the first six or seven years, not at all addressed. And there was always this idea, and this is a recurring theme of the book, or indeed any history of the railways, that the railways should pay for themselves, that uh, you know they should make a profit, um, or at least not lose much money, um, and therefore should not be a burden on the state. Um, and this was always a, a, a kind of uh, imperative of government. And I think that uh, meant that far from kind of investing in the railways, there was always the idea of, well, let's cut back. If we don't run this branch line, we'll save a bit of money, um, rather than looking at uh, you know, this fantastic network inherited uh, from the Victorians um, and thinking, well, we could make this better. We could gather in kind of more passengers if we ran the trains a bit faster or changed over to diesel or electric locomotives and so on. So the first seven or eight years were characterised by really a lack of imagination from government. And then there was suddenly a U-turn. Uh, there was a, a, a strike and uh, they wanted to buy off the, the, the threat of the strike. Uh, they realised that, the that the railways had been run down and had very little investment. And so they announced this big programme, which was of worth over one billion pounds at the time, you know, which probably reflects about 20, 22 billion now, uh, a vast amount of money to uh, improve the railways. So both in terms of uh, bringing in uh, new rolling stock, uh, diesels in particular, replacing many of the steam engines, uh, electrification of some of the network, um, and also some other ideas which were probably not so uh, strong for candidates for investment, like, for example, creating huge marshalling yards. That's where wagons were kind of 
uh, sorted out into trains, which in fact was a pretty redundant technology even by the 1950s. So there was some good spending, but some of that money was wasted. Mm. I wanted to ask um, more about electrification because as you just mentioned, you just mentioned it there um, and you show in the book that it wasn't exactly a sort of linear or straightforward process for British Rail to be electrified. So can you kind of tell us about how that happened? Well, British Rail kept its uh, steam locomotives for far too long, but there were reasons for that. There was not only the conservative nature of railway managers who you know, liked these big, I mean, a lot of them were kind of train spotter types, really. They liked these big steam engines and, uh, you know, smoke pouring up into the countryside and that, that wonderful noise they make. So they liked them. But also, you have to remember that there was a great uh, shortage of uh, steel, of uh, other components to make electric locomotives. There was no uh, effectively no industry that made them uh, in the UK uh, until until uh, the mid-50s when they did start to develop an industry. So, uh, and coal was plentiful, um, but electricity had to be generated uh, by otherwise, and certainly diesel was uh, really not available in any quantity. So they kept their steam locomotives and then suddenly they decided, look, this is crazy we've got to uh, move over to uh, electric or diesel and there is a problem with electrification which is that there's a lot of sunk cost you have to invest in the pylons in the cables in the power generation and in the locomotives Um, and therefore there was a reluctance to go down that path Um, and so initially most of the changeover from steam was for diesels as in the by the mid 50s it became easier to import uh, some of the fuel necessary how then did was electrification kind of finally accomplished well the first big electrification scheme was what we call the west coast main line which runs between london and uh, manchester liverpool uh, and uh, glasgow um, via birmingham and uh, that was accomplished really in a rather strange way. That there was a decision to do it in the uh, late 50s as part of the modernization plan. Um, and British Rail kind of started doing it. But as I describe in the book, uh, there was never quite the go ahead to do it all. But kind of British Rail, in fact, did it almost by subterfuge, doing bits here and there, and then eventually joining it all up and uh, finally electrified the whole uh, line by 63. And that was a fantastic success. So uh, suddenly, rather than these nasty, dirty steam engines, uh, you know, that, you know, even, even people who left the windows open on the trains, there was no air conditioning, of course, would end up with soot on their clothes and the like. Instead, they had these nice, clean electric trains, much quieter, uh, great acceleration, more reliable. And so there was something of what's called a sparks effect. You know, there were many more people deciding to travel on the line uh, that had been electrified uh, than using any alternative. But the trouble was that that lesson took ages to learn. And still, even today, we have major parts of the rail network which are still not electrified. 
and and that probably represents a, a great failure both of British Rail and its successors. I'm wondering if um, we can sort of stay on this just for one more moment. That you you mentioned uh, British Rail sort of did this in the initial lines through subterfuge, and this was one of the more um, intriguing aspects of the book, or certainly perhaps one of the more unexpected ones. So I'm wondering if you can uh, tell us a little bit more about kind of how they did this and what it tells us about how British Rail was kind of constantly trying to manage being government run. Yes, there's always something of a, a conflict there. And uh, essentially, for most of the period of British Rail, uh, the government would set a budget, often quite late in the process, you know, maybe January for the year starting in April the 1st or something, that would learn of its budget. The government would probably earmark some of that money for particular schemes like, you know, let's let's uh, uh, get some diesels bought, built, bought, or let's uh, electrify, you know, this particular line. But, but mostly it was then up to British Rail to manage that budget and to try to limit uh, any losses. And clearly there's always tension in that process. British Rail was always trying to do things, uh, wanting to uh, invest in things, wanting to uh, improve the network, wanting new rolling stock and the like. And the government is kind of sitting there uh, often negating or saying no to, to, to certain schemes that uh, British Rail wants to get uh, through. So um, that is undoubtedly a relationship that is fraught and more so because this uh, idea that you can get a railway that pays for itself was uh, never achieved. Uh, you know, it, it, it's always a kind of idea that, well, if you did this or this, um, and at one point they're saying if you cut certain things, then in the modernization plan, they were saying, well, if you invest in certain things, uh, you get to this uh, nirvana where the railway pays for itself um, and government no longer has to be involved. And that it never happens. And it never happens because, uh, to be honest, it barely happens in any countries in the world. Railways have huge fixed assets, real really heavy maintenance needs. And the idea that uh, they can pay for themselves or indeed that they should pay for themselves uh, is uh, largely a uh, impossible aim to achieve. And that is a kind of failure of the economics of transport because uh, you know, any economist worth their salt would recognise that the externalities brought by the railways, in other words, the advantages to people who are not using them, such as in reduced congestion, uh, reduced uh, pollution, access to business, uh, and so on, uh, are not recognised in the fare box and should be therefore uh, funded by society generally. And and this is an argument that has raged almost since uh, uh, the onset of the railways. One of the other arguments or one of the other kind of sources of friction um, with British Rail that you talk about in the book um, is obviously the really famous or perhaps infamous Beeching Report. Uh, which closes a massive number of uh, stations, lines, um, and kind of, at least in myth, or maybe in the popular imagination, is kind of this horrible thing for um, British Rail. To what extent was 
the report entirely bad? What, you know, what obviously tell us a bit about the bad parts, but were there any sort of other aspects that were maybe important or accurate? The, the, the Bishop report has its uh, genesis in the creation of the British Rail Board, where uh, it's finally in the early 60s taken out of uh, the British Transport Commission and, and given its, its own kind of uh, independent structure. But there's a Tory uh, government in power with a transport minister who's fairly hostile to the idea of railways, Ernest Marples. And uh, he appoints uh, Richard Beeching, who has no experience in the railways, is actually an industrial chemist, works for ICI, um, as uh, the chairman of this new uh, British Rail Board and asks for a report into the state of the railways, which is then published in 1963, um, famously called Reshaping of uh, Britain's Railways. And it, it essentially recommends vast swathes of closures. Now, there had been a closure programme already. There were lots of lines that were built by the Victorians that duplicated other lines or went to small villages. Or you have to remember that the rail network in the 1890s, 1900s uh, was actually pretty much the only way of getting around uh, for long distances. There were no effective roads, no, no cars. Um, and so inevitably, there were lots of railways built to places that by the 1960s were well served by uh, other transport means, whether it's buses or private cars or whatever. So it was inevitable that the network needed pairing back. But Beeching's uh, recommendation of effectively cutting more than a third of the network and more than half the stations uh, arguably went too far. And uh, certainly some of the lines that uh, were closed as a result of his report uh, should not have been closed. And of course, one could blame Beeching, but in fact, really, it was down to the politicians. And interestingly enough, uh, there was an election in the, in the middle of this in 1964. Uh, Labour took over with promises that uh, it would reduce the number of cuts and did nothing of the sort. And actually, uh, 1965 was the record year for cuts. So uh, it, it was, uh, in a way, a rather, uh, it was a, an inevitable process, but one that was taken too far. And in it, Beeching did believe in the, in the, uh, the railways. He just believed in a pared-down network that probably, if he'd really had his way, would have just linked certain major towns say, down to Exeter and Plymouth in the southwest, up to Edinburgh and Glasgow in the north, maybe not much north of that, uh, maybe into Cardiff, but probably not much else of Wales, and so on, uh, uh, kind of really pairing back on the railways, which, which fortunately uh, didn't happen, in the notion that the, this uh, promise of having a, a rail network that was paid for itself uh, could be established. Now, he had other ideas too. He improved the freight system. Uh, he created what are called merry-go-round trains, which were a way of transporting coal from mines uh, through to the power stations where they would drop from there uh, through, actually through the rails uh, very quickly without barely, without, without stopping. That's why they were called merry-go-round. Much more efficient than kind of having to load and unload uh, wagons by hand and so on. So he did, he he did kind of 
improved things. He 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 invented the intercity brand, which uh, became the main way to link uh, Britain's uh, principal towns uh, and so on. But he is remembered uh, for the cuts he made and for the fact that uh, you know he really he really was an axe man, and that that's what he is known as in history. Moving then to some of the heroes that you talk about um, in the book, one of them is Barbara Castle. Why is she one of the heroes of British Railways? Well, transport ministers come in two sizes, really. They come in as roads people or as uh, rail people, uh, you know, whether they favour one or the other. Most of them are roads people like uh, Ernest Marples. Um, and uh, Barbara Castle, who came in, uh, in in the second Labour government, 1966, um, as transport minister, was definitely somebody who favoured uh, railways. She never had a driving licence, for example. Um, and even though there were still some cuts uh, that were made while she was transport secretary, uh, um, uh, she brought through an act which uh, at last uh, 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 differentiated between the two railways, which are the commercial railway, where uh, particularly intercity trains, uh, some freight uh, trains, um, even some uh, suburban networks can uh, pay for themselves and even make a profit um, and therefore uh, only need a light touch from uh, a government. And then there's the social network where lines to, to uh, fairly you know, seaside towns, branches that are uh, maybe only used much in the summer, um, uh, uh, lines through um, like Wales, which are kind of relatively uh, underpopulated and therefore never going to be uh, profit making and so on. Um, and that is the social railway, and that's the railway that needs subsidising. And this, the, why she's a, a hero or heroine in my book is that she was the first to actually set that out and to say, well, this 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 bunch of lines needs subsidising. This bunch of lines can stand on its own, and that's a very important distinction, which is still even today not always uh, properly understood by those. Uh, running the railway, and certainly not by ministers who are hostile to the railways. So uh, one of the other kind of important figures, in addition, obviously, to transport secretaries, um, which, as you've just outlined, can be very key or very challenging. Um, you also talk about in the book, the chair people, the chairmen primarily of British Railways, also obviously having an important role to play. Um, and I bet I was quite confused because literally two of them are named Robert Reed. Um but one of them goes by Bob Reed, which kind of helps. Um, but Robert Reed, not Bob Reed. Why do you consider him to have been the best chairman of British Rail? Well, there was uh, a, a series of ever improving uh, chairmen, and they were all men of uh, British Rail, and, and the first to, to really kind of try and grasp the nettle and understand the importance uh, of having uh, a public. A relationship with the public that uh, presented the railways in a positive light was uh, Sir Peter Parker, who um, was a, a valiant fellow. I did actually get to meet him uh, before he died. Um, was a fantastic kind of communicator, 
wrote a very funny business book about his uh, his life. Um, and uh, in short, he had good relationships with the politicians, with the unions, uh, and with the public at large. And so he started the process really of making uh, British Rail both more commercially minded, but also understanding uh, its social obligations. And he ensured that his successor was uh, Robert Reed, um, who was maybe a bit more hard-nosed than Peter Parker. Um, but he uh, reorganised the railways and managed to get rid of the old regional structure. And, and the regional structure, which was a hangover really from the days of the big four companies that ran British Rail uh, between the 1920s and, and 1948, uh, the regional structure really was something that stymied development. Each region kind of had its own boss and they were called the kind of regional barons. Um, and uh, they essentially made decisions which were mostly in their local interest, not necessarily in the interest of the organisation as a whole. And uh, over uh, his near 10-year tenure uh, as chairman, uh, Bob Robert Reed, the first of that name, um, changed the structure. So he uh, devised uh, a, a structure with uh, five companies, essentially two freight companies, and then Intercity, uh, which is a, a standalone, a pretty much a standalone company, which ran the services between uh, the main uh, lines in uh, the main cities in uh, England, Wales and Scotland. Uh, and then there was uh, Provincial Railways, which became Regional Railways later on, which was the heavily loss-making uh, lines, which needed a lot of uh, uh, social uh, subsidy. And thirdly, Network Southeast, which was all the commuter lines uh, in and out of London, stretching quite far, as much as 100 miles away, some of those services. And uh, that was uh, had been really uh, neglected, even though it was a, a kind of mainstay of the British Rail's usage. Most passengers' journeys, 70 or 80% started or ended in London. Um, but that had been greatly neglected. And under uh, particularly forward-looking leaders like Chris Green, uh, as another hero in my book, who, who successfully ran uh, ScotRail, uh, um, Network Southeast, and later Intercity, uh, Network Southeast was transformed and given an identity and uh, improved enormously uh, by... Uh, in, in terms of the, the service it offered the commuters who were, as I say, a very key part of British Rail's market. So I wanted to um, ask about that, right? Because one of the things you do talk about, and I'm glad you mentioned Chris Green, um, had quite a big effect in two different parts of the country. Um, but British Rail generally did work quite hard to attract people to use their trains um, so I'm wondering if you can kind of tell us about how they tried to do this and what tended to work. Well, one of the things that was really lost at privatisation was the whole branding of uh, uh, British Rail itself, but also the sub-brands of Intercity and Network Southeast in particular and uh, regional railways. Um, and that was started also by Beeching, who uh, commissioned... Uh, the, the logo, the famous uh, double arrow logo that 
uh, you know, very pleasingly is used on Google Maps uh, to show a, 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 a station. Um, and uh, it also uh, Beeching, under Beeching and his successors, they developed a very strong branding exercise, you know, thinking through the color schemes, thinking through how the, the station names were uh, displayed, uh, thinking through the whole typography of uh, the, the rail network, uh, the color schemes for uh, both inside and outside the rolling stock, and so on. And uh, that gave British Rail a, a strong identity. Um, and then uh, built upon that, uh, they created the sub-brands, like Intercity in particular, with some amazing advertising, uh, which was very popular, TV advertising. Um, and it became a, a widely known brand. You didn't take the train, you took Intercity. Um, and actually, oddly enough, it's a, it's a brand that has been used by uh, in other countries across the world, actually, just imitating Intercity. Um, and uh, that was a, a particularly successful part of, of British Rail, uh, so much so that the whole corporate identity idea uh, was then imitated by many uh, private companies, but it was actually uh, down to, to British Rail, who developed, you know, produced a, a huge manual uh, with loose leafs uh, in it, so you could change the particular aspects of it, uh, highlighting all the different aspects uh, of of this branding. And uh, um, you know, the the fact that you know the the, the twin arrow logo survives today and is going to be used by uh, Great British Railways, the, the company that the government is going to set up to essentially uh, be the guiding uh, mind of the railways, uh, is a testimony to uh, the talent of railway managers, which is something worth emphasising, actually, that, you know, far from being a kind of dismal set of people who, uh, you know, were not interested in the commercial aspects of the railway and didn't really uh, have much idea of what they were doing and didn't care and were sloppy. Uh, there was a cohort of managers who went through a training scheme, a graduate training scheme, joined at the age of 21, 22, um, and uh, were highly successful, uh, indeed so successful that for the first 20 years of privatisation, uh, it was they who ran most of the train companies uh, that took over from British Rail. Mm. I'd love to ask about another um, sort of successful part of British Railways. In fact, you call it in the book, the pinnacle. Um, what was organising for quality and why was it such a success? Well, uh, first of all, Robert Reed had to break up uh, the regional barriers and create these three uh, passenger companies and two freight companies. Um, and uh, then... Uh, just in the last couple of years of uh, uh, British Rail's uh, life, uh, he then gave quite a lot of freedom to these uh, organisations, which became really semi-freestanding uh, organisations run by managers who, yes, they were given a budget by Central British Rail and, and told to try to keep within it, but were able to, to make all sorts of decisions around investment uh, around uh, ticket pricing, around all sorts of aspects of uh, operating the railway, uh, timetabling in particular, uh, that uh, meant they could uh, essentially control their product. So there were businesses uh, in themselves with, as the 
very notion organizing for quality kind of suggests with the notion that they were very much public facing uh, that as much as possible within uh, you know bounds of possibility they were uh, commercial um, and they were uh, always looking at increasing the numbers on the railway which um you know, they managed uh, uh, largely to do since the mid 80s, actually, numbers did start to go up, except uh, in the late uh, 80s, early 90s, when there was a recession, which always reduced uh, numbers using the railways, because so much of the market was uh, around uh, commuting. But uh, for by and large, uh, the last 10, 15 years of British Rail was very successful in terms of uh, its uh, commercial aspects. Why then was British Rail privatised? Uh, yes, why indeed. Um, the, 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 the excuses given were, and I, I did uh, manage to, to uh, eventually get a, a kind of, uh, uh, when I worked on a TV programme, get a letter from John Major, who was Prime Minister at the time, as to why he did it. Um, and he set it out in, in a letter. And in that letter, he says, well, British Rail was inefficient. It was unimaginative. Uh, it it uh, didn't have good managers uh, and so on. Um, none of which was actually uh, true. It was really privatised for ideological reasons. It was privatised because uh, they'd sold off everything that they could sell off. Water, electricity, the trustees savings bank, uh, gas. Uh, and uh, so on. And uh, there was nothing left to privatise after uh, Tory rule from 1979 to 92. Uh, surprisingly, the Conservatives won the 92 election with a manifesto promise of privatising British Rail. Nobody really quite knew how they were going to do it. They certainly didn't. Uh, but uh, they uh, were then committed to it. Um, and uh, created a, a very complicated model involving uh, franchising, uh, involving separating, most importantly, involving separating out the infrastructure, which is the stations and the track and the like, uh, from the operations and privatise them in, in different ways. And that, that was absolutely crucial aspect with the idea that you could have competition. But, you know, as they soon found out, having competition uh, in a rail network is very difficult because, uh, you know, there's only one set of tracks up to anywhere and uh, making that competitive is very difficult. It's very difficult for trains to pass each other and, and so on. But so essentially, to answer your question, there, there is no doubt that uh, the abiding reason for the sell-off was ideological and uh, not kind of one that was born of any particular interest in improving the lot uh, for passengers. There was a claim that this would reduce subsidy, but uh, rather amusingly, subsidy kind of increased massively uh, because of the structure that was created it was very complex and involved lots of contracts and uh, a lot of kind of uh, complicated ways of operating, a lot of compensation paid to particular parties when things went wrong and so on. And, uh, you know, to this day, uh, the railway system is much more heavily subsidised than it ever was under British Rail. That's rather a long list of problems with privatisation um, and certainly kind of makes clear why this was, as you said, it, what, there wasn't even really a plan when it was announced um, and the plan didn't necessarily think through 
kind of how rail doesn't necessarily operate like other industries do. Um, how then kind of take us up to the present day? How, how does the government now think about railways in Britain? Okay, well, there is a fundamental problem with the railways. Uh, well, there's several, but there is one fundamental problem that it loses money and therefore you can't just sell it off and say right you know like uh, coca-cola or whatever you know you go off and run it because there is always the need to subsidize uh, 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 services and by and large subsidize most of the investment um, in in the railway so uh, that is one of the problems why you know the, this complex structure is always going to to, to struggle um, and the other aspect of it is that the railways are not like aviation, and this comparison is often made. And people say, well, the, uh, the aviation industry kind of uh, thrives on the fact that, you know, the airport is owned by one company, the planes are probably leased from another company, and then uh, they're operated by a third company, um, and uh, nobody much uh, worries about any of that. Well, the railways are not like that. I mean, the railways are uh, always uh, on the pair of tracks. Uh, the trains are always on a pair of tracks. Uh, they always need to be signalled by uh, um, people in the signalling centres. Um, it's very difficult, as I suggested, to uh, run different trains between the two same uh, parts, uh, twin cities, a pair of cities. So they're always going to be uh, problematic in terms of creating conventional capitalism. And I think that has always been the problem, has been the idea that, uh, oh, we can just kind of run the railways uh, as a conventional uh, business. And I've always called that faux capitalism because uh, they need regulation, they need control, they need uh, government funds, they need government decision <coughs> over what uh, services you want to run and so on. So there is always this uneasy relationship. So this franchising uh, idea has survived just about to this day, but was destroyed by COVID. So what happened was that uh, the franchises were about 25 franchises were sold off. And that means it's a slightly strange word because franchises, you envisioned McDonald's, but uh, essentially companies were given five, seven, or in one case, 20 year deals uh, under which uh, they would operate the services, they would collect the fares, and they would either, depending on what sort of lines they took over, uh, get subsidy uh, to help them pay for it, or uh, pay a premium if it was particularly into city lines, which were likely to be profitable, and therefore uh, they would be able to pay money uh, to awards uh, the, the, the cost of running them. Um, and uh, uh, they would pay access to uh, the infrastructure, they would pay charges for that, uh, for every mile they, they ran their trains, uh, and that would go to what was initially another privatised company, Railtrack, uh, but that soon collapsed within four or five years of uh, privatisation, particularly as a result of some accidents and some investment decisions, uh, and was soon nationalised as Network Rail. So that part of privatisation was a failure. The rolling stock was sold off uh, to three different uh, companies, um, and they also bought a lot of new rolling stock, which they then leased to the train companies, which in turn then... Uh, got the money for the leases essentially from the government. So 
that was a privatization, but it's subsidized by government. And then the third aspect to it was uh, the franchises, uh, which collapsed when uh, COVID happened because uh, railway usage went down to 5%, down to 5%, not down by 5%, down to 5% of previous use. Uh, clearly, the idea that the franchises could take the revenue risk, in other words, pocket the the fares, uh, was no longer viable, uh, and therefore the franchise system collapsed. And it was already in the process of being changed. And now the idea is that uh, there will be a guiding mind, a new company called Great British Railways, that will make investment decisions that will... Uh, uh, operate the trains, although probably passing under contracts to private companies, but in very limited way. They'll have management contracts, which means that the fare box will all go to Great British Railways, and these private companies will run the services, uh, like often bus services are run, you know, to a schedule uh, and at prices that uh, are set by. Great British Railways. But this has not been yet decided. And so the railways are at the moment in a state of flux. And the Great British Railways will require legislation. Um, And given that the state of the British government at the moment, where we are uh, awaiting a new prime minister and the like, it's unlikely that we'll get much clarity over the future of the railways uh, for six months or a year. So clearly, then, the government, um, whoever it ends up being, has rather a lot of work to do next. Um, What, may I ask, as we come to the end of this, now that your book on British Rail is done, um, what are you working on now or next? Um, Well, uh, I've suggested in the book, and um, lots of people within the industry agree with me, that you either need a uh, a fully privatized network, which I think is impossible because of the reasons I've stated about requiring subsidy and uh, it being an essential service and etc. Or you have a fully nationalized uh, network and basically you recreate a version of British Rail. You can't quite recreate it because the rolling stock has been sold off. Uh, lots of very useful parts of it, like the research department. Um, and uh, some of the and the catering aspects have all been sold off, but you could have a strong organisation which ran the trains, uh, that was responsible for infrastructure, that was in charge of long-term strategy, that made investment decisions, made decisions over fares, and so on, uh, which was the case with British Rail, and was by and large, it's, you know, in its final days. Uh, a pretty successful model, but that is not what we're going to get. And I will continue arguing that it is uh, the best thing that were the best result of this process. Uh, but um, you know, it remains to be seen exactly what this new structure will be. I suspect, particularly if we get a, a, a Labour government, that it will try and simplify the structure that is being com- com- uh, now being uh, built up. Because oddly enough one of the motivations behind this new structure was to simplify the system. But they've got about 200 consultants working on it at the moment, and and it looks as if they're going to create a model that is just as complicated as the current one. Mm, It doesn't sound simple, I have to admit. So I'm glad that an expert like you also thinks it's perhaps more complicated than it needs to be. Um, So then, before I let you go, um, 
you have written, as you said, quite a number of books on the topic um, and clearly remain very invested in um, the future of railways in the UK. Um, might you be able to share with us in a sentence or two, a teaser, I suppose, of what you might be working on next as your next project? Uh, well, I'm afraid I'm working on something totally different. I, I, um, uh, I, I wrote a book called Engines of War uh, about 10 years ago. Um, and in it, I postulated that uh, the role of the railways in warfare had not been understood. And in fact, uh, the railways were uh, largely responsible for the great upscaling in wars. Compare uh, the Napoleonic War, which where the Battle of Waterloo was over in a day, with 100 years later, the Battle of the Somme, which took most of a whole year. And uh, the railways played a big role in that, uh, in supplying uh, both sides in uh, in kind of enabling them to be entrenched and so on, and indeed the railways are playing a big part in the in the in the war in Ukraine at the moment. Um, and one of the things that was done early on was part of the network was uh, destroyed by the Ukrainians to to stop the Russians using the rail network. So um, my new book is. Uh, uh, I'm very tempted to write a book on that, but I, I've commissioned at the moment to write a book on uh, the role of the railways in the liberation of France in 1944. So the, the network was virtually totally destroyed by a combination of Allied bombing and in particular uh, sabotage by the Résistance, uh, helped by uh, a lot of uh, explosive delivered by the RAF. Um, and so when the uh, invasion started uh, in, on June the 6th, 1944, um, the, a, a lot of railway troops were sent over to rebuild the railways. Um, and that story has never been told. Um, we often hear about the logistics that, you know, oh, it was all done by trucks. In fact, two thirds of the material that was carried was carried by rail. Um, and uh, lots of railway were rebuilt by troops, often even under fire in very difficult conditions. Bridges were uh, rebuilt amazingly rapidly right into uh, into Germany, actually, uh, to enable uh, the line of lines of communication to to continue. And so, uh, my uh, story, which will be published early in 2024, called the Liberation Line, uh, will uh, explain uh, that process. Will will tell this. Uh, a story for really for the first time ever. Nobody has really kind of written about it uh, uh, in any detail. Um, and it is an absolutely fantastic story. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Definitely. Um, well, best of luck with that project. And hopefully when it does come out, maybe we can entice you back to tell us about it then. Um, but well, amazing. Well, while you are off um, writing that, um, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, again, titled British Rail, A New History from Penguin in 2022. Christian Walmart, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. A great pleasure. Thank you.